Well, we're on a four-week series called The Gospel. We began last week, and we're going to begin this morning with our Easter message. And I think the story of Easter is told best, best through the eyes of a child. So I want to give you a picture of Easter through the eyes of a child. Enjoy this with me. Hello, my name is Eliana Anderson. My name is Elysia Anderson. Once upon a time, there was a bunny. No. <laughs> One day, Jesus went to Jerusalem on his donkey. They all gathered um, twigs and they waved them in the air. They threw their coats on the on the ground. Hosanna, Hosanna! It's the Son of God. Then on the last night of with his friends, he had a meal with them. They ate the Last Supper. He said that to remember him every time they had that supper. He went to the garden to pray. Yes, Gethsemane. But the disciples fell asleep with the donkey. After Jesus prayed, Mingars took them away. So drugs were bad. Jesus said that he was God's son. They didn't like it at all. The people got so mad that they put Jesus on a cross. His mom and his friends were very sad because they loved him. He died because he wanted to forgive our sins. They brought him off the cross to a cave that had a stone so he couldn't get out. Saturday, they were all sad and they were all scared. On a Sunday, they went to look and they saw he was not in there anymore. The tomb was empty. An angel told them that Jesus had risen from the dead. The women came running to the disciples to tell them, but they would not believe them. Jesus came in the room. They were all surprised and they were all happy. Since they were so happy, they had a month together. After they had so much fun, Jesus went onto a top of a hill and he waved goodbye all to his friends. He said, I will come back someday. Bye, I'm gone. Tell everybody about me. And he went up to heaven. The disciples, they told everybody that Jesus would always forgive them. Now I know that he loves me and my little sister Alicia and my mom and my dad and he loves everybody. That's why me and my sister love to dress up and go to church and be pretty as we celebrate Easter. By celebrating, we say to Jesus, thank you and we love you. I think children tell the story best. Well, for those of you that are joining us on the journey of the gospel, we are, we are speaking four weeks uh, this month on the gospel. And to me, what is the quintessential verse of the gospel? Probably the most famous verse uh, in the entire Bible, John chapter 3 and verse 16. And we're taking different aspects of this verse and looking at it piece by piece to try to really put together the backstory and the meaning of this verse. Because I think sometimes when something becomes so common... 
we, we lose the real impact and meaning behind each and every word in this verse. And I could literally spend the rest of my life preaching John 3.16 and never run out of material. Because it's so rich. There is so much there in this verse that changes our lives. So I, I invite you to read with me. We're going to read together as a family. John chapter 3 and verse 16. For God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son... So that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Last week, we looked at the word perish. And I encourage you, if you missed last week, go to the website, download it, or our iTunes podcast, and, and take a look at that word. We, we really looked at the backstory of the word perish. What is it about that word that caused Jesus to go to a cross? And we, we looked at what Jesus had to say about the literal hell. You know, Jesus talked about hell 33 times in the Bible. Almost once a month for every year of ministry he was in. Spoke more about it than, than really anyone else because it is a very literal place. And I know in the world, in the day and age we live in, there's a lot of people that don't believe in a literal hell anymore. So I encourage you, if you want to know what the physical properties of hell are like, what the emotional properties of hell are like, look at some of the theology of hell. What did Jesus have to say? He called it an eternal place. He called it a place that was forever. And I want to explain one thing quickly from last week. You have to understand, hell was not created for human beings. The Bible says God designed and created hell for the devil and his angels, but because of our wickedness, because of man's sin, hell was enlarged, not because of design, but enlarged out of necessity. See, God chooses every single one of us, but the only people that experience eternal life and go to heaven are the ones that choose him back. Because God will not force anybody to choose him. He gives you free will. And so we looked at the word perish last week, the backstory of that word. Today we're going to look at this word son. He gave his one and only son. What did it mean to be the son of God? What did, what did it mean to be Jesus Christ? Why was that so unique, so radical, so different? Well, I think Jesus tells this story, gives us the backstory a best in John chapter 18 in the first 11 verses. He tells the story, it says, after saying these things, Jesus crossed the Kidron Valley with his disciples and entered a grove of olive trees. Judas the betrayer knew this place because Jesus had often gone there with his disciples. The leading priests and Pharisees had given Judas a contingent. I want you to remember that word contingent because I'm going to mention that in a moment. Of Roman soldiers and temple guards to accompany him. Now with blazing torches, lanterns, and weapons, they arrived at the olive grove. Jesus fully realized all that was going to happen to him, so he stepped forward to meet them. Who are you looking for? He asked. Jesus the Nazarene, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. Jesus who betrayed him was standing with him. As Jesus said, I am he, they all drew back and fell to the ground. Once more he asked them, who are you looking for? And they again replied, Jesus the Nazarene. I told you that I am he, Jesus said. And since I am the one you want, let these others go. He did this to fulfill his own statement. I did not lose a single one of those you have given me. Then Simon Peter drew a sword and slashed off the right ear of Malchus. Remember Malchus, the high priest's slave. But Jesus said to Peter, put your sword back into its sheath. Shall I not drink from the cup of suffering the Father has given me? In this story, we kind of get a little bit of the backstory of what it meant for Jesus Christ to be the one and only Son of God. In the story, you're going to see three things that I want to, I want to talk about this morning. 
First, you're going to see the greatest claim in the history of mankind, the greatest claim, the most audacious, the most outlandish claim in the history of mankind. You're going to see the greatest problem that us humans have ever faced, and you're going to see the greatest mission, the greatest solution, the greatest, greatest accomplishment. First thing, let's look at the greatest claim in this story. What is the greatest claim? Verse 5, Jesus says, who are you looking for? They said, Jesus the Nazarene. He responds, I am he. Now, in the actual Greek, the word he is not actually there. Jesus' response is simply, I am, period. I am, period. They added the word he. English translators added the word he to give the text more meaning so that we understood what was going on. But literally, what the God's son, what Jesus Christ was saying is, I am. And if you know the significance of this statement, it's found all the way back in the book of Exodus, chapter 3. Moses is arguing with God, the burning bush experience. And God says, Moses, I want you to go to Egypt. I want you to rescue my people. I want you to bring them out. I've seen their suffering. I want you to deliver them. And Moses says, they're going to think I'm crazy. Who should I say sent me? And God says, tell them the I am has sent you. I am who I am. Say the I am has sent you. So what does this I am mean? What's the purpose of this statement, I am? See, if you understand the Hebrew verb to be, I am, we as human beings would never say that about ourselves. It doesn't make sense for us as a human being to call ourselves the I am. Why? Because we always have to attach something to this phrase. I am this, or I am that, or I am because. But for God, he simply is, I am. See, God is not I am because, God is not I am that, God is not I am this, God simply is I am. He doesn't depend on anything, he's not because of this, he's not because of that, he is simply the I am. This is why that is the greatest claim in human history, that a man, flesh and blood, see, Jesus Christ was 100% human. He was 100% human. He stands in front of these Roman guards. He was 100% God, 100% human. He stands in front of these Roman guards, and he says, I am. What was he doing? He was taking a divine reference upon himself. He was calling himself God, calling himself the Son of God. I am who I am. I am the divine. And this is the problem that we have in our Western society, in our modern paradigm of thinking. See, if you look at all world religions, if you look at every religion in the world, from Buddhism to to Judaism to to Hinduism to uh, Islam, they all basically say the same thing. They're all founded by prophets and sages, and, and they all basically have the same claim. You know, you look at Muhammad, you look at Buddha, they all have the same claim. I am here to show you God. I am here... To, to bring you to truth, to show you the way to live, to, to show you the divine, to help you get connected to the divine or connected to truth or connected to an enlightenment, whatever, whatever you know, the, the method they choose, it's all basically the same claim. I am here to show you the way, how you should live your life, how to get connected to the divine. That's where Jesus is absolutely different from every other religion. That's what sets apart Christianity from everything else. See, Jesus never said, I'm here to bring you to God. No, no, no. He said, listen, guys, I am God. Come to you. Do you understand how radical that is? That a a man, a human being, flesh and blood, standing in front of these guys said, listen, I 
am. I am God. I am not this. I am not that. I am God. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one goes to the Father except through me. See, Jesus isn't going to sit on the shelf with every other religion. And if you look at what Jesus said, it has to make Christianity, if you believe it, superior to every other world religion. Now, I'm not being intolerant by saying that. I'm just looking at what the guy said. Because what is our, our, our Western, what our modern paradigm of thinking? The way we look at world religion is simply like this in this day and age. We basically say all religions are basically the same. You know, all religions are basically the same. They all bring you to the same place. All roads lead to heaven. You know, all religions are, you know, are, are generally good. You just have to choose the religion that suits you best. What's, what's best for you? What's best for your personal preferences? But you can't do that with Christianity. Jesus doesn't give you an opportunity to set him on the shelf with everyone else. You get on a self-realization clinic. They'll have the picture of Buddha, a picture of Muhammad, a picture of Jesus. And they're, and they're teaching you, you just got to find out what's best for you. You got to choose what's best for you. But if you read anything that Jesus said, you'll realize quickly you can't do that with him. He either is the son of God, the savior of the world, the I am, or he is a crazed lunatic of megalomaniacal proportions. I mean, he, he is a lunatic on the level of Charles Manson if what he said isn't true. See, I'm not being intolerant. I'm just, I'm, I'm just, if you just read what he said, that's why you cannot respond to Christ tepidly or, or, or mildly. You, you, you cannot say about Christianity, you know, I like Christianity. It's a good religion. There's a lot of good things about Christianity. You know, it's good. I just, you know, I don't really know about this whole son of God thing. I don't really know about like, surrendering my time. You can't do that with intellectual integrity at all. Anyone that says, you know, I like Jesus. He was a good guy. He was a great prophet. You know, I just don't know. Anyone that says that has absolutely no intellectual integrity because they've never wrote, read anything he said. Because he's making crazy statements on every page. I mean, there was one point, he said, before Abraham was, I am. Another part of the Bible, he said, I've been sending you prophets and sages for centuries and you've killed them all. What? How old are you? I mean, do you understand how radical some of the stuff coming out of his mouth is? I remember one time Jesus told a group of people, I saw Satan thrown from heaven like a lightning bolt. What? Where are you from? I mean, everything he's saying is absolutely, it's crazy stuff. Well, you say, well, you know, how do you know what Jesus said was actually what he said? You know, isn't it passed down from generations and wasn't written till, till hundreds of years after he actually said it? Well, if you say that, then you don't simply understand how the Bible was authenticated. You know, if you talk to scholars today, I'm not even talking about Christian scholars, just scholars in general, they will tell you that the Bible historically is more accurate than most Roman records because of the painstaking efforts the authors went through to authenticate it. Richard Bauckham wrote a book recently called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. Remember that guy, Malchus, I told you about? Have you ever wondered why bit part players are in the Bible? You know, like you read the book of Mark and it says a certain man here or, or lady at the well here. You read Matthew and Luke and it actually gives the guy a name. You know, John, we just read a story of Peter cutting this guy's Malchus ear off. Why did it mention his name? 
Well, if you're asking that question, you don't understand how the Bible is authenticated. See, in our modern world, to authenticate a book, we put citations, we put notes, and then in the back of the book, there's a bibliography, and you can read the, the references of where they got the research, where they understood that. But in this time period, with, with, to have something that was historically accurate and authenticated, you wrote your references into the story. The reason Malchus' name was mentioned is because John personally interviewed him as he was writing that chapter. He was one of the eyewitnesses that John used to write that chapter to authenticate it, and people reading it in that time period knew exactly what it meant. So when you see these bit players in the Bible, it was simply the eyewitnesses, and you had to interview the eyewitness while they were still living. So the Bible was written just a generation of Christ. Many people, uh, everyone that was an eyewitness was alive when they gave the report to the author. That's how it was authenticated. That was how Luke wrote his entire gospel. Since Luke wasn't a disciple and wasn't around, he had to interview person after person after person to painstakingly write an account, the gospel of Luke, for someone so that he could authenticate this story that people were hearing. And that's what you discover in Richard Bauckham's book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. So the greatest claim in human history, I am. I am the Son of God. I am the only way. So there's only really two responses to Christ. You either accept him as the Son of God. I remember, you know, even Bono from U2 gets this right. Bono was being interviewed not too long ago, and I, I, you know, the, the interviewer asked him the question, said, Jesus is value and is ranked among the great thinkers of the world, but Son of God? Isn't that a little bit far-fetched? And even Bono got this right. He said, no, it's not. I mean, think about this for a moment. You know what sounds far-fetched to me? That a crazy liar lunatic literally changed the history of the world for hundreds of millions of people and we're still talking about them today? That's far-fetched. That to me is a little bit more far-fetched than believing he was the actual son of God. So to really, the only way to respond to Christ is you either... Accept what he said about himself. He was the son of God. You surrender your life to him. You build your entire life around him. Or you absolutely disdain and despise him as a lunatic and liar, but there's no middle ground with Jesus. He doesn't allow you to sit the fence. Jesus doesn't allow you to say, oh, he was a good person. He had a lot of good things to say. If you read what the guy wrote, You either give your life to him or you despise him, but there's no middle ground. He's not going to sit the shelf with every other religious leader. He didn't come to say, I'll show you the way or I'll bring you the way. He said, I am the way. And I I guess there's integrity in being temporarily neutral if you're checking out Christianity. So I would say there's integrity there to, to check it out, you know, research it a little bit, find out about it. But then you have to come to a point where you either say he's the son of God or he's a liar, but you can't say he was a good man. He doesn't, if you just read what he said with intellectual integrity, you can't walk away and say he was a good man. He was either the son of God, the liar. Greatest claim. Let's look at the greatest problem. The greatest problem. In this story, verse six, Jesus said, I am. And the Bible says they all drew back and fell to the ground. They drew back and they fell to the ground. Now let me paint the story, uh, paint the picture a little bit in the story. The the, the word contingent of soldiers that I told you to, to remember earlier. In the Greek, that word is spiria. It is a formal military word for a Roman imperial guard. These aren't just any soldiers. 
These are the Roman Imperial Guard soldiers. Now, let me explain the Roman Imperial Guard. They were the best of the best. If you ever saw the movie Gladiator, the beginning of the movie, that crazy battle scene, the Roman Imperial Guard are the ones that survived battles like that. They were battle-hardened. They were tough. They were the best of the best. You didn't get to guard delegates and diplomats and politicians if you were just any old soldier. You had to be the best of the best. This is the imperial guard come to get Jesus with the high priests. And if you understand what's going on, Jesus was an insurrectionist. He had a number of followers. When they arrest the insurrectionists, they arrest all the followers too. They weren't just after Jesus. They wanted all of his followers. And they came prepared for a revolt. They brought weapons. They were prepared. Scholars will tell you, with this Greek word, that the detachment, the platoon of soldiers that they brought was anywhere from 200 on the minimum side to 600 soldiers in the garden that night. Think about that. 200 to 600 soldiers in the garden because they were ready for a fight. They were ready for Jesus' followers to revolt, to cause trouble. And if you understand warfare of this time period, the whole, you know, the whole training was based around you stand your ground. You stay on your feet. If you fell off of your feet, likely you were going to die. So one of the core elements of training was stand your ground. So you got to get the picture. These guys are like Navy SEAL. They're, they're Marine Special Recon. They're special forces. They're the toughest of the toughest. They are trained to stay on their feet. They don't fall down, these guys. Jesus says, who are you looking for? They said, Jesus the Nazarene. He says, I am. And boom, all 200 fall to the ground. 200 of these soldiers lose their footing, knees buckle, fall to the ground. And that brings us to the greatest problem that we as human beings have. None of us can stand in the presence of God. You get into the presence of God, you Fall. What happened here is Jesus, the Son of God, as he said the words, I am, for a fraction of a second, a veil was lifted. The soldier saw who he actually was, the perfect, awesome, all-powerful, omnipotent Son of God, and none of them could stand. And we see that throughout the Bible. Ezekiel chapter 1, Ezekiel talks about you know, the presence of God coming into the room, and he says, when I saw it, I fell face down on the ground. Second Chronicles chapter 5, the, the high priests were, were in the temple preparing everything for worship. And all of a sudden, the, the presence of God, the Shekinah glory, they call it, the, the Hebrew word kabod, began to fill the room. And the Bible says the priests could not stand and continue their service, but they fell to the ground. Peter in Luke chapter 5 has an epiphany of who Jesus is. And in that moment, the Bible says, when Simon Peter realized what had happened, he fell to his knees before Jesus and said, Oh Lord, please leave me. I'm too much of a sinner to be around you. See, do you understand? Nobody can stand on their feet in the presence of God. And let me tell you why. It's not as weird as you think. If a 300-ton boulder came flying through the wall and landed on the stage next to me, I would lose my footing, guaranteed. I would be on the ground. I would fall. I would fall out of fear. I would fall out of this awesome, amazing, massive boulder hitting the stage, this awesome hunk of power coming through the wall. I would certainly lose my footing and fall to the ground for a number of reasons. Because any time you get around something so awesome in presence, awesome in power, massive in strength, you get into a river and the current is too strong. 
What happens? You lose your footing. You go into a battle and the enemy is too strong. What happens? You lose your footing and often die. That's why in Ephesians 5 when it, or 6, when it talks about putting on the whole armor of God, it says after you've put it on, stand firm. Stand firm. Why? Because if you're standing at the end of the battle, you've likely won. See, it's all about standing. It's all about standing firm. And this puts us up against another problem in our modern paradigm of thinking, not necessarily with religion, but with spirituality. See, we live, in a, we live in a culture, especially here in North County. You meet people all the time where I don't really buy into the whole organized religion thing, but you know, I, I just want to be in touch with my spiritual side. I, I'm a spiritual person. I, I've got my spirituality. You know, and, and the way they look at it is God is this divine, warm being of love. And, and when you get around God, you get in touch with your spiritual side, you know. You get all the warm fuzzies. You know, in touch spiritually. The only problem with that is when you research people who've come in contact with the presence of God, it was anything but warm and fuzzy. Rudolf Otto, the, the German uh, scholar, he did cross-cultural studies all over the world of people who've come in contact with what he called the numinous, the, the divine presence, the divine presence of God. And the way he described it after, and this wasn't Christian studies. This was all cultures, all types of people, simply who came in the presence of this divine being, this, this, this God-like presence. He said it was anything but warm and fuzzy. In fact, they called it the Mysterium Tremendum, the terrifying experience. It was traumatic. It was fearful. It would bring you to your knees. You couldn't stand. It was so terrifying. In fact, Adolf Huxley The humanist, he actually said in one of his books, The Doors of Perception, about this mysterium tremendum. He said, the literature of religious experience abounds in references to the pains and terrors overwhelming those who have come too suddenly face-to-face with some manifestation of the mysterium tremendum. In theological language, this fear is due to the incompatibility between man's egotism and divine purity. Now, let let um, let me break that down a little bit. We as human beings, you know, you know, when you fear, the fear of God, the fear of the holy, when I get too close to the reality of God, it is traumatic. It is absolutely traumatic. And, and again, it's not as weird as you may think it is. Our self-image as human beings is basically wrapped up in our performance. That's where our self-image comes from. It's wrapped up in our performance as human beings. You know, I grew up in a small town in Texas, and the, the self-image of our town, what, what the, the, the highest goal of people is we just want to be good folks. That's our self. We want to be good folks. We want to be good people. Here in North County, the self-image is a little different. You know, we want to be successful. We want our kids enrolled in a certain school. We want to drive a certain car and live in a certain house. And if the economy affects that, then our self-image becomes shattered. And I counsel people all the time in the community, struggling financially, going through things. And and I've heard this statement three or four times now. uh, If I lose it all, I'm just afraid that my wife may leave me. See, that's how fragile our self-image is when it's, when, it, when it's built up in performance, when it's built up, you know, in a society that's, that, that's dictated by things and stuff. Not only that, but it's insecure. It's simply being insecure, being around somebody better than you at something. Now, I, read, I read in the New York Times an article about an Ivy League school out east that, you know, the alumni was getting very concerned and very worried because fewer and fewer people knew that this was an Ivy League school. And they said, we got to do PR. we got to do marketing. We have to make sure people know that this is an Ivy League school. One of them was finally honest and said, you know, the 
the reason this is so important is when you graduate an Ivy League school, that's your identity. That's your self-image. So for people not to know this is an Ivy League school, that, that attacks our very identity and self-image. So think about this. If you can feel that insecure around human superlativeness, imagine what it would be like to be in the presence of the divine. You know, if you'll get insecure around a human being because they're better looking than you, or, or they may be more brilliant in an area you thought you were smart in, or maybe more talented or more gifted in an area you thought you were good at, if you'll feel insecure around that, imagine what it's like to stand before God, who is all perfect and all awesome. That's why it's not this warm, fuzzy feeling you get, but it's traumatic when you get in the presence of God. Imagine what it'll be like on Judgment Day. And if you're a secular person, you would hope for a judgment day because how else will all the wrongs in the world be righted, all of the injustices that we see? How will that be corrected without a judgment day? But the problem is, if there is a judgment day, what hope do we have? See, if heaven is supposed to be this perfect place, mathematically, I can't go there. What do I mean? If I did one thing bad as a child, one, just, just one simple maybe lie or, or, or stole something, a gumball as a child, and then I spend the rest of my life doing millions upon millions of good deeds, mathematically, I'll still never be 100% perfect. It's impossible for me to ever reach perfection in my own effort. And just think if it was, what if God set a rule and said, okay, if you can do a million good things, I'll let you into heaven. If it was based on our efforts, if you do a million, or whatever the cutoff line is, but just imagine if it was a million. If you do a million good works in your lifetime, you can go to heaven. How terrible would you feel if you were the guy that got to 999,999 and missed it by one? See, logically, that doesn't make any sense at all. It doesn't make any sense at all. See, the only way for us to make it is to be able to stand before God righteous, stand before God pure, stand before God clean, stand before God holy. I mean, you know, in our own efforts, it's impossible. And this brings us to the greatest mission in the history of mankind. Verse 8, Jesus tells the soldiers, I told you, I am he, Jesus said. And since I am the one you want, let these others go. Remember, they were there for all of them. You would have never heard from the disciples again. They would have all been killed. They wanted to stamp out this movement. They wanted to stamp out this revolt. They wanted to stamp out these Christ followers. They would have all been goners. And what did Jesus do? He stood up and he said, listen, I'm the one you want. Let them go. Me for them. Take me. Let these guys go. And if you study that in the Greek, the, the, the word let them go in the Greek is actually translated forgive them. Forgive them, forgive them, take me, forgive them, and take me. Let them go and take me. See, the substitution. Jesus said, I'll be punished for them. I'll go. Remember, he was innocent. Jesus was innocent. He never committed a sin. He was perfect. Do you guys remember the, the movie Last of the Mohicans? Great film. At the end of the movie, there was two, two soldiers, Duncan and Hawkeye, and they were both in love with a girl named Cora. But Cora only loved Hawkeye. 
And at the end of the movie, the, the, the Huron Indian tribe, they, they captured them and they were going to kill Korah for the sins of her family, for the sins of her tribe. And it was the judgment day scene and the chief of the tribe was sitting there and they were going to give her the death penalty and throw her into the fire. And Hawkeye, who loved this girl, said, no, don't kill her, don't take her, take me. But he couldn't speak the language. And so he had to have Duncan, this other soldier, translate for him who loved Korah. So he told Duncan, tell the chief, tell the chief, take me for her, my life for her life. Take me, I will die, let her go free. So Duncan was so moved by the love he saw of Hawkeye for this girl that he knew would never love him. He speaks a message in French to the chief. And the chief lets young Cora go. And all of a sudden they grab Duncan, not Hawkeye, and they throw him into the fire. My life for their life, me for them. And you, and you can say, well, isn't Jesus just talking about the 12 disciples? He's just talking about the 12 of them there. Yeah, but look at verse 11. Verse 11 Jesus says to Peter, put your sword back into its sheath. Shall I not drink from the cup of suffering the Father has given me? The cup, the cup. All throughout the Old Testament, we hear about the cup of suffering, the cup of judgment, the the cup of judgment day that all of these bad and evil people one day will be given the cup of suffering to drink, the suffering for their crime, the suffering for their sin, the suffering for their wickedness. And Jesus says, shall I not drink the cup? See, he wasn't just doing this for the 12 that were there in the garden he was doing it for all of us let me drink the cup of suffering my life for their life punish me let them go free and I love Peter in this story I mean think about it Peter just spent three years of graduate school with Jesus I mean three years with Jesus turn the other cheek Peter love your neighbor Peter serve and love your enemy Peter Do kind things for people. And then all of a sudden, in Jesus' critical, pivotal moment, Peter pulls out a sword and cuts the high priest's ears, slaves' ear off. How many know he wasn't aiming for the ear? I mean, Peter's got bad aim along with everything else he's going through. And I am so comforted that Jesus in that moment didn't say, you know what, forget this, take him. I got to die for this. Jesus is full of so much grace. He goes, Peter, come here. Let's go through the gospel one more time. The cup, the cross, the suffering, the resurrection. Peter, this is for you. See, if you're a secular person, you'd say there is no judgment. We just die and it's all over. Religion says there is a judgment day and you better live right. Because if you mess up, God's going to strike you down. But what I love about the gospel The gospel says there is a judgment day. But the judge came down to earth and was judged in our place. I want you to let this soak in for a moment. I want you to, the worship team is going to sing a song that really to me closes this message. And I just want you to really meditate on the words of this song and let this message begin to soak in. God, you say. 
See, the meaning of Easter is Jesus Christ went to a cross for you. He was innocent. You were guilty. I was guilty. He hung on the cross and he paid a price for us, a price that we could not earn. How silly would it be to think that it's his cross and our good works that matter? It's not about you being a good person. It's not about you earning it. It's not about you working hard. It's not about you living a good life. It doesn't matter how much good you think you can do. You'll never get there. That's why Jesus said, I didn't come to show you the truth. I am the truth. I've come to do it for you. And all you have to do is take it as a free gift. See, God chooses every single one of you, but the only people that experience eternal life are the ones that choose them back because God simply isn't going to kidnap you and force you to spend your eternity with him. He gives you free will. He gives you choice. He loves you so much. He did everything possible to make this as easy as possible for you. It cost him dearly. See, it wasn't, it wasn't cheap. It cost, but it's free for you. And so this morning, if you need to make a decision to put God first in your life, to accept the gift of the cross, the gift of Jesus Christ and his death and his blood that he shed as punishment for you. And you receive it freely this morning because of grace. Again, you can't work for it. You can't earn it. It's not about being a good person. If it was about being good, I would never be here. It's about his love and his mercy and his grace. So if you want to make a decision today to put God first in your life, with every eye closed and every head bowed, I want to pray for you quickly and help you make a decision today to put God first. If that's you this morning, you don't know the condition of your soul, you don't know where you would spend eternity, but you want to make a decision today to know. With every eye closed, would you raise up your hand right now so that I can pray for you? Right now, thank you. Thank you, thank you. Thank you, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Many of you. Let me take it one more step. What I want to do is I want to lead you in a very simple prayer. There's three parts to the prayer. Number one, you invite him to take first place. You invite him to take over your life, to be the Lord of your life. So right now in your own way, in your own words, invite him to take first place in your life. The second part is you ask him to forgive you. We've all messed up. We've all made mistakes. I like to say we've all checked into the same hospital. Some of us just may have gotten there a day early. Just right now in your own way, ask God to forgive you. And then lastly, I just want you to say thank you. Thank you for the gift. Thank you for doing it for me, what I couldn't do on my own. Thank you. And that's it. That's it. Now, if you prayed that prayer, I want you to do one more thing today. I want you to tell somebody out loud that you made a decision today to put God first, to make Jesus Christ your Lord. The Bible says when you believe in your heart, you confess with your mouth. When you prayed that prayer, you let me know that you believed in your heart. 
Now you've got to do step two, which is confess with your mouth. Don't miss it on a technicality. Tell somebody today you prayed that prayer today. Tell somebody out loud. And then also, I'd like you to, on the connect card, there's a box on the back that says, I made a decision to put God first in my life today. I encourage you to check that box, drop it off in a moment, and we will get you information on what to do next. We also have a book outside. Uh, It's back there. It says, now what? What now? What do I do now? I've made the decision to put God first. Now what? Pick up a copy of that book. It's free. We also have Bibles out there for you. Pick up a Bible. They're absolutely free. It'll help you do the next steps.